always saw something was wrong with this system when I was working at Goldman. Like that was always very clear. But this has really forced me to really, really think deeply about that down to like, okay, why, why, why? You keep questioning and you keep asking why. And I think that requires and also promotes kind of this open-mindedness. Hello and welcome to Bitcoin with Jake. Listen in to hear from Bitcoiners dispersed all across the globe whose personal journeys I leverage to gain conviction in an ongoing due diligence process. I need to take a moment to mention our sponsors. Orange Pill App is for those of us that want to meet Bitcoiners. Dubbed Bitcoin Social Layer, it helps you connect in an ultra-local fashion whilst also curating suitable events nearby. Check out episode 48 to hear the journey of Matteo the founder of Orange Pill App, in case you need any more excuses to sign up. Hardblock is an Australian Bitcoin exchange. They've been serving the community from as far back as 2014, never got sucked into the dubious world of altcoins, and continue to be one of the industry leaders down under. Check out episode 17 to hear from Daniel Wilczynski, the founder of Hardblock, for a more in-depth background. Now, let's get on with today's show. This evening, I'm speaking with Andy Pitt. Hey, Andy, how are you? Hey, doing really well. How are you doing? Yeah, very good. Thank you so much for joining me. I must say, as someone who's spent time in the startup space, I'm particularly fascinated to hear what you're doing in your day job at the moment, but we're going to get there eventually. What we'll first do is spend some time digging around in what you knew before Bitcoin. So if you could rewind the clock and think about where was I, what was I doing when I came across Bitcoin, teach me about that part of your life to start with, please. It's actually hard to remember exactly when I first heard about Bitcoin. The first memory that comes, very significant memory, was sitting on the trading floor at Goldman Sachs in, I guess it was 2017, when there was a pretty significant bull run in Bitcoin. And obviously everyone was talking about it. I didn't have probably the energy or the brain power. Like I was so busy with work that I don't think I had any mental capacity to or anything else at that point in time in my life. Mm. So I didn't have this kind of curiosity to think what is Bitcoin and to understand it more. Um, that sort of came probably a couple of years later, but that was the first time I came across Bitcoin. And I remember, you know, there was guys on that floor who had bought Bitcoin years ago and suddenly were worth all this money. And I think one guy even quit his job and went and bought a house and yeah. retired at like late 20s. So that was my first kind of exposure. And it's often the way that we have a number of touch points just to pick up on something there. So many of the listeners, they won't have a clue what life is like as a, a Goldman Sachs employee, number one, but two, what a trading floor is. So how did you end up in that position? And you know, a lot of people would think of that as like maybe a high finance type role, but were you always interested in that area? And how did you end up doing that job? Yeah, that's a great question. So I guess I was always very good at finance. I wouldn't say that was like what I wanted to do necessarily. I'll rewind a little bit. So I grew up in Australia. I was very, very good at maths in high school. And so I was very much like channeled into sort of one of three potential career paths from a very academic high school, which was either becoming a doctor, becoming a lawyer, or because I was good at maths, doing actuarial science, which is like financial. And I was like, basically mathematics and statistics for insurance and finance. And I went to an all girls school. So, you know, engineering was not really on the table. It was like doctor, lawyer, banker. So <laughs> I studied actuarial science and then I guess became more interested in banking through some of the university societies. And I guess learned about investment banking being this prestigious career and you could earn a lot of money. And 
My family had no money growing up. I always had to be very, very self-sufficient. So that sounded like a really good place to start my career, to earn some money, um, get a good resume and like have this solid foundation for myself. But I had always been really, really passionate about in university, I got exposed to some ideas around development and I was always passionate about developing countries and understanding them and understanding why there's this huge differential in the world. And I got exposed to a lot more ideas around governance and policy that really intrigued me. So I thought I would work at Goldman for a couple of years and then I would go and do a master's in political economy and go work in Africa. So that was always my plan. Cool. Uh, I ended up at Goldman Sachs for a lot longer than that. Sucked you in. <laughs> so I started my career in Australia in mergers and acquisitions, then moved into advising mostly natural resources companies and then moved into leveraged finance in Australia and then moved across to sit on the trading floor in New York with Goldman. So that's kind of how I ended up there. It was a bit of a, it just sort of happened, I would say, in a way. Awesome. We never know quite where life's leading us. That's in right. some ways the, the, the hard part, but we don't know where we're going in some ways. Okay, cool. And so when you get to the Goldman Sachs trading floor, just paint a picture for us. Like who are the kind of characters that are there? What are your roles on a day-to-day -day basis? I'm assuming it's obviously like make money, make money, make money, make money. But there's a, a huge array of different financial products and services that actually exist that you honestly, no one's ever heard of them until they end up in that kind of environment. And from my understanding, people get very specialist very quickly. And of course, you know, if you hit a winner a few times, you can become extraordinarily wealthy from doing it properly, but people burn out. The downside is very real. So yeah, just walk us through what a day might be like in that kind of environment. Yeah. So I'd say all of that is true. And my role particularly was not how you might envisage a trader to be. So okay. you might envisage everyone's like yelling at each other, like, I want to buy this, sell this. That sort of went away. That was called open outcry trading. There's not any of that anymore. Um, and there was still some of open outcry, but down at the stock exchange, actually on Wall Street. Whereas we were sitting on the trading floor, at Goldman and everything was done by a Bloomberg, basically by a chat and people calling each other. So sometimes... When the market would get really heated, you would have people yelling, and like trying to trade. But in general, it was a bit different. And then my job, I wasn't what's called a flow trader. Mm -hmm. So I sat on the trading floor. Goldman Sachs has two trading floors. One is for equities and one is for fixed income currency and commodities or FIC. Mm -hmm. So I sat on the fixed income currency and commodities trading floor, which is level five at Goldman Sachs building, which is 200 West Street down in New York. Wow. just across the road from the World Trade Center. So that floor is basically, I think I counted at one point, it was 900 people. So you basically wow. walk in, it's this huge floor. It's just rows and rows and rows of desks. And most people had four to five screens. There's TVs going like every few desks on the ceiling. It's like high ceilings, huge for so many people. And then all of the offices are kind of around the edge to maximize the sort of open floor space of the trading floor. Um, so that's what is called the trading floors. Yeah. And then exactly what you said, there's sort of different people doing different jobs. So you had teams that were trading interest rates. There were teams that were trading commodities, futures, foreign exchange, credits, so fixed income, high yield, investment grade, as well as international government, all these types of bonds. And then you had sort of a few different teams. And my team was sort of then this special team that weren't trading for clients. So all of those people were basically like market makers for clients. Mm -hmm. So clients, you know, a mine wants to like hedge a whole bunch of their risk. 
they come to Goldman and Goldman like makes a market in all of these, in all of these derivatives and all of these kind of commodities markets, credit markets. I mean, this is actually something that gets lost a lot in talk around crypto is actually the function of the market maker. And that's effectively what they're doing. So you used to be able to, before the financial crisis in 08, be a proprietary trader. So where you could take a whole bunch of positions and basically take risk to try and make money for the Goldman Sachs book. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those desks lost a bunch of money and created like risk effectively during the financial crisis. So that was actually made illegal in some of the post-crisis regulation. Mm-hmm. So what we were doing was not proprietary trading per se, it was principal investing. So what we were doing was investing the firm's money or money that we had raised in other ways, basically in structured credit. So we were basically identifying gaps in credit markets around the world, like where a company or a government or a fund needed some sort of funding facility. Mm-hmm. We would work with a whole bunch of bankers, salespeople all around the world, and they would come to us you know, with a client that had a funding problem. And we would see if we could come up with some interesting structure that was always new and pretty innovative, solving some sort of problem mm-hmm. uh, that we would then be able to basically provide to that client. And then we would basically invest in that. And we might that might be done via a whole range of different, it could be a derivative, it could be a loan, it could be a bond, like a whole bunch of different things. And then we had this book that we would then manage basically a whole range of risks that we would trade on. And so just to try and drill down into a specific example, are you able to share any of the details on a yeah. deal that you did? Let's say yeah. I'm an airline and I come to you and I say, right, you know, we've got these problems. But what would that look like? Yeah, airline is actually a great example because I did quite a lot of aviation financing. Okay. So what it looked like in the aviation financing industry. So a lot of airlines don't actually own all of their planes. So if you think about an airline, it's like a very risky business. You know, there's a volcano, the whole industry shuts down. There's a pandemic, the whole industry shuts down. Like there's yeah. always 9-11, everything yeah. shuts down. Fuel price goes up or yeah. you, know, you name it. Yeah. So if they're buying all of their planes, they're having to get all of this capital to do that. And it's like airline credit risk is bad. So what happened over time was the leasing industry developed. So companies basically would, all they do is buy planes and lease them to airlines. And so okay. their cost of capital is much less because you can, they're basically, we would then lend to those leasing companies secured over the aircraft. Awesome. So we would provide, say, like a couple hundred million dollars financing and they would have to put a bunch of planes into the facility yeah uh, so we were basically lending against and we were specifically kind of creating a market in older aircraft and okay a bunch of interesting structures around how you actually do that um, interesting yeah so that's one example just to share very briefly i used to work as a shipbroker, so i was in right. specifically the dry bulk market and so the middleman between Rio Tinto moving iron ore from Australia to China and through that got exposure to you know some trading floors and derivatives markets Mm -hmm. and equally then you know how to finance vessels so people go to banks such as Goldman's they raise finance they get it on a lease they then you know rent it to Rio Tinto for 15 years or however long they do it for and there's all sorts of different structures that friends of yeah. mine were brokering between these different entities. So I understand that quite well, but you know, it's always so interesting to hear about other areas. I mean, I have no idea how an airline actually financed, do you know what I mean? So really cool to hear that. And to steer slightly back towards Bitcoin. So um, that's a great insight into what life in Goldman was like. Thank you for sharing that. The thing that I find so fascinating is at some stage, this all leads to Bitcoin. So 2017, couple mates of yours on the trading floor of one big one of them's even quit 
was that the moment you started paying more attention or did something else um, happen that made you go, ah? Oh. And, and so perhaps I would ask a direct question, which is, you know, what problem is Bitcoin solving for you that really caught your attention? Yeah, it's interesting thinking about my psychology at the time. And I think there is this psychology for so many people who are not yet in Bitcoin is they feel like they missed out and therefore they want it to not succeed. Yeah. Because they missed the boat. Yeah. They missed the boat. It's like an emotional thing where they don't want to have missed out on something. Mm-hmm. And so therefore they hope Bitcoin isn't successful because of that. Mm-hmm. And I think I had a little bit of that in 2017, if I'm quite <laughs> Nice. That's um, honest. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't remember, I just don't remember thinking that much about it, to be honest. Mm-hmm. When I first started really getting involved in crypto, not Bitcoin, was in 2018. So I quit Goldman, planning to kind of go and do a PhD and travel and time out. And I'm sorry, you decided yeah, to quit Goldman. You had enough. And so, how long did you work there for? Nearly eight years. Wow. Okay. Cool. You're like, yeah. I'm done. Okay. And yeah. you didn't follow then the political economy that you wanted to do. Yeah, I that's so. I thought I would take some time out and then go back to university, uh, but I first wanted to take time out. So I ended up traveling. Well, I sort of started making some inroads and making some progress in a few areas around that and then realized like I really needed to take time out before I, you know, I'd been with Goldman for eight years. I was totally burnt out. Like yep. I needed time out. Wow. I ended up in Berlin, well, in France and then Berlin with a whole bunch of the early Ethereum developers. I'd become friends with them through other friends and a lot of people there were talking about crypto. And that was really when I got first involved in crypto and blockchain and understanding it. I went to this tech open air conference, TOA in Berlin. I remember there were presentations from Polkadot, from Polygon, the Ethereum. I started to really understand the technology. But what I didn't get was the use cases. All the use cases that people were talking about, I was like, none of this makes sense. Like, that's not the problem you're solving. And I was always like, don't you just use a database? I remember at the time being like, this doesn't make sense. Like this, people were talking about, for instance, blockchain for transparency in governments. The technology is there. The problem is that the governments don't want to provide the transparency. Not this solution just doesn't make sense. And so I was like very put off by all of that. And then I sort of completely stepped away from anything Bitcoin crypto. And I didn't really come across Bitcoiners, unfortunately, in that time, I guess, because I ended up in this like altcoin space. And so I, again, I like, had this touch point and sort of missed it. And it was really only a couple of years later when I was talking to Jeff and Nico about what was going on in Bitcoin. And I'd always knew Bitcoin was there as this kind of network, but really starting to understand it. So it was really probably only a couple of years after that, that I started to actually understand Bitcoin. And then it's been just so fascinating. I'm staying with my parents in Australia and dug out all of my old textbooks from university. And it's like, financial maths, like political economy of development, development in Africa, economics, and realizing all of these interests of mine are actually like coming together in Bitcoin. Wow. So being about creating this new financial system, yeah. obviously I have all this experience in, and then it's really about democracy. It's about governance. It's about politics. It's about creating a more democratic, equal, fair, free, open world, which is what I wanted. I sort of like took this winding path and ended up in Bitcoin, realizing that's actually this way of actually working in what I wanted to to start with. Such a massive penny drop moment, isn't it? But hang on. (laughs) And I also, it's so funny, isn't it? In some ways, I think we're all extremely lucky to have had these experiences in our lifetime 
that enable us to see this thing for what it is. And a lot of people just didn't happen to have those different touch points, right? Let's dive into this area where, okay, you had an interest in, in that political economy side of things. So yeah. what is that exactly? Yeah. And, and how does Bitcoin play into that? So in high school, I got very interested in development. So I read all these books like by, um, oh gosh, Jeffrey Sachs, for instance. Yeah, I've read one of his. It's not in right. here, but yeah, the, the guy at Columbia University, yeah. Right, so throw billions of dollars at it, solve the problem. The problem yeah. is just like... Pitching. <laughs> yeah. I guess I, I, I always just had this interest in foreign affairs, in what was going on in the world from a very young age. I think I just couldn't understand how it was possible that some people were born into so little compared to others that were born into so much. And I always just felt that was really deeply unfair and I just couldn't understand it. And I guess things that I can't comprehend always, I guess, interest me. And mm-hmm. that was just this big interest. And then in university, like I co-majored in economics, but what I really wanted to do was development economics. So they didn't have a specific major for that, but I kind of just took all the, created the most flexible course for myself that I could and and was studying development economics. Like, Okay, let's understand the economics, therefore you can fix. I did this course at the University of Michigan when I was on exchange there in the US with a professor who was from the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa. The course was Political Economy of African Development. And that was the first time I was exposed to all of these ideas that the problem is not the economy, the problem is the governance. The problem is the way that the governance works, is politics, is and then you start going into all of the source root problems as opposed to just Jeffrey Sachs's throw money. The problem is just distribution. No, the problem is, you know, the Congo, for instance, at the end of the colonial period was left with, I think, something like 100 university graduates in the whole country and a system imposed on them of, you know, this, this, the nation state system expecting to have democracy, elections, all of this stuff in a country which has never had that. And then you're surprised why they have the challenges they have. So it was really understanding why civil conflict happens, why you have state failure, why governments don't act in the best interests of their people. And that was what really, really started to interest me mm. um, because I thought it was just such this fascinating kind of idea. So all along, that's sort of like sparked this interest. And that's what I wanted to work in. And I was studying development economics and it was just really seemed really stupid to me. It was like, there's three randomized control studies that show that flip books help education outcomes in Africa. And I was like, this just seems really dumb. Like, I don't think flip books are going to like help the country improve. I'm sorry. Mm. And so, yeah, that was sort of like what I was passionate about all through, I guess, thought I would end up working in. And so just to keep that train of thought going, you'd very much come across a problem that A, you cared about, but B, the solutions didn't make sense. And to, to bring Bitcoin in. So why is Bitcoin important in this kind of, I think we could call it civilization building, right? How do you structure the best society? Why is a failed state in existence? And, and so where is Bitcoin important in that, do you think, from where you see it? Yeah, I think it's very interesting. I guess if we think of the entire concept of the nation state and whether that actually makes sense. So if we kind of zoom out, I think we always have this thinking in our minds that at this present moment in time, we've done it. We've figured it out. You know, like all of the middle ages, God, what were they doing? But it's like today, you know, we have democracy, we have elections, we have countries. Mm. I think we take it all for granted, but we just have this mentality. We've figured it out. We're there. We're done. When in actual fact, we're not even close. We're on this kind of Mm. some point on the evolution of 
the idea or experiment of human civilization. Like we have no idea how far along we are. Humans have existed for 4 million years ish Mm -hmm. civilization for like 5,000. Are we right at the start of civilization? Are we at the end of it? We have no idea. So it's an experiment. And one of those experiments was like having a concept of a nation state, which is a very recent idea. And it really only has existed and been enforced globally by populations in general, being kind of a generally accepted principle, if you like to call it that, since sort of the Bretton Woods system was implemented post or the the United Nations in post-World War I. Um, And in Africa, it's really post-colonialization, end of colonialization in the 60s. So you've only had the concept of the nation state sort of enforced on populations for call it 60 years. And those nation states have their own governments, they have their own currencies, they have their own political systems, they have their own institutions. And in some countries where that was developed over time, it sort of works. In many countries, that just simply doesn't work. So if you think about, so I'll bring in Bitcoin as like the currency, for instance. But if you think about just a nation state, for instance, in Africa, They have to have elections because that's what the international system tells them they need to do. But you had borders drawn around people who have nothing to do with each other, who are different tribes, have different allegiances, and now you have a democracy. And so you have these politicians who are just like riling them up and creating conflict for their own political. One of the very, very big aspects of that system is the financial system and the currencies and people being locked into their countries and locked in to their political systems and their political structures by the currency mm-hmm. and by borders, of course, but one of the big ones is the currency. Mm. So I think that it's a natural evolution in human civilization that we move away from the linkage of the state and the currency mm-hmm. to the same way we moved away from the linkage of church and currency to a decentralized currency that's not controlled, manipulated by the state and that's a whole bunch of reasons. And so the way that that is going to then shape politics, to me, I think we have no idea what it will look like, but all I view it as is a very, very logical next step in the evolution of human civilization. Well, and just to keep chiming on the as a specific example, so I've had some amazing guests from Africa on the show. Farida Bemba comes to mind, who is originally from Togo and tells in amazing detail, the impact the CFA has had to specifically her family, but also, you know, the wider context, like 14, 15 African countries essentially have all their gold still in France, and they get it debased, you know, whenever the French feel like it. And it's a hugely egregious financial system or burden on these people. And you think, hang on, well, that's not that's not fair, first of all. But why is that in place? And, you know, of course, when Bitcoin comes along as a neutral monetary system, well, people, they don't need to be told twice. And that was so amazing about talking to someone like Farida is you know, I'm based in Melbourne now, grew up in England, had financial services my whole life. It's not an issue necessarily to to transact with anyone else or get debt for that matter. But in other countries, it actually very much is. And they don't need a second option when it comes to adoption. They're like, no, no, boom, we're in. And, and that's what plays into this discussion. How fascinating. And how does this connect to venture capital? So we'll come to ego death now. And... So you had these interests and and Bitcoin's kind of like touched up a few times. You mentioned having conversations with Nico and Jeff. So how did Ego Death start? And, you know, obviously you were financing airplane companies relatively recently, like looking at Bitcoin startups is a whole different ballgame. So talk me through how that journey has been. 
So at Goldman, I had a, I guess one thing I would just say is I had a pretty wide range of experience. So for instance, when I was in Australia, I was advising companies in industrials and natural resources. Then I did leverage finance. So that was, I got a lot of very intense training, but I learned a lot. And we were basically financing private equity companies to buy out Australian businesses. When you're putting at risk hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, um, that we would basically be committing to. There's a very, very rigorous process that you go through in terms of understanding businesses, industry, yeah. economies, financial models, everything. So it's like full on deep dive and and versus maybe on an advisory seat, like for us, it was like, if we mess something up, we lose all of this money. And so it's just a very, 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 very rigorous training. And then in New York, one aspect I was doing was aviation but there are a whole bunch of different industries so we did a really big financing for sprint we securitized their their rights to use certain spectrum bands okay. uh, and making money out of thin air the financial times called it which i quite uh. liked uh, <laughs> so anyway that was because you mentioned something that oftentimes when people come into trading they become very specialized and i was sort of lucky that i ended up always sitting in seats that had pretty like broad Nice. Broad views, and so I got to just learn about a range of different industries, and you know, all the way into tech. We worked very closely with kind of SoftBank and the Vision Fund, and so you know, like pretty big range. So anyway, started talking to Nico and Jeff about what was going on in Bitcoin, and by this point, you know, we're obviously by this point, I'm a Bitcoiner and passionate about it, and realizing that not only could Bitcoin change the world in all these amazing ways, but it's going to need the building of that layer that application layer of all of the technology around it so that people could actually use it. Mm-hmm. And historically, that wasn't really possible because Bitcoin wasn't scalable. But with this inflection point where the Lightning Network effectively brings scalability to Bitcoin, now you can actually build scalable businesses on Bitcoin. And we need those scalable businesses. We need all of the technology that's helping people like Farida, helping people you know, all around the world, including myself and everyone to use Bitcoin every day. And there was going to be a huge range of companies building that were going to need both capital and support. With my background in investing and advising and everything, and Nico's background in private equity and Jeff's background, and both of us have built businesses in between. Jeff Booth, my business partner, has an amazing history of building, scaling, advising, leading, running businesses. And so that was sort of the thesis for the fund. And then we brought this team together. I had been friends with Nico. Nico had been friends with Jeff already. So that's sort of how okay. we met. And then kind of brought this amazing group of advisors that I'm extremely privileged and grateful that I get to work with to be able to kind of support all of the founders that were going to be building this ecosystem to kind of bring that vision of, that we want into reality. Awesome. I can't wait to learn more about it. So I often do a kind of audience shout out. So Luke Richards often listens in. Luke, shout out to you. But he asks the really obvious question, which is how do you outpace Bitcoin? Mm-hmm. So, you know, any investor out there potentially, you know, obviously look at Ego Death as a fund. How do you look at an equity investment in a company when you could just hold Bitcoin? Yep. So I just want to preface it's not financial advice, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, don't, don't worry about that. No one listening. Be, no one listening is going to do anyway. that. <laughs> <laughs> look, it's a great question. Obviously, we all think Bitcoin is going to increase substantially from where it's at, especially if I think about a sort of five to 10 year horizon. And we think that the application layer has the potential to actually really, really grow very, very significantly as well. So we, you know, we do expect, it's kind of amazing to be in a seat where we can actually invest 
in companies and do something we're really passionate about that also has potentially really great financial returns for our investors. Mm-hmm. So there's that incentive to actually invest in this application layer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there is potential for very significant returns. They may be more than Bitcoin. They may be less than Bitcoin. Who knows? I think what's really interesting for a lot of our investors is they are all invested in Bitcoin, but they may not want to have 100% in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And so this is a really interesting way for them to get exposure to the Bitcoin ecosystem that's diversified. So the returns on the companies we're investing in to an extent will be uncorrelated with the returns on Bitcoin. So if Bitcoin stays sort of where it is, our companies actually can be very, very, very successful. If mm-hmm. Bitcoin goes down, our companies can be very successful. In a way, they're, they're then uncorrelated. So if I'm thinking about an invest like my portfolio approach, it's a really interesting investment for people to have that's exposure to Bitcoin, but potentially uncorrelated. Awesome. And certainly something that as I look to the next bull cycle, as and when it happens, that I'll definitely take a bit off the top, hopefully not time it too badly. That'll become my cash flow. And equally, I would love to get some more cash into startups. I did some angel investing in 2017, 18, really loved the process. It's so fascinating meeting entrepreneurs who kind of see a future and you're like, holy shit, like that might work. And then figuring out what to do. And at the time, I'm still still young and, and new to this. So I joined a syndicate that was very helpful in terms of understanding the due diligence process. And that will come on to my next question. So the process of doing due diligence on an early stage company, teach me about that. So how much time and effort goes into each deal? How do you find each deal? And, and what specifically from your kind of Goldman days have you brought to the VC space that's exciting? Well, if there's one thing I've brought, it's the diligence. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I, yeah, I was doing, you know, pretty substantial deals at Goldman, you know, yeah. millions of dollars of capital committed sometimes. I still remember the first time I had to run a deal past the head of securities division, who was known to be terrifying. And the two partners that I worked with were like, not available. So they were like, just go do it yourself. Oh. Um, so you learn very, very quickly. You have to have all of the answers. And there's so the Goldman commitment process, you have an investment committee, every sort of like good institution will have an investment committee and then a memo, which was like kind of a 20 plus page memo. And so that's sort of how we do our diligence, but that's like not that exciting. So I'm going to go into more like the other bits and then- Please, whatever excites um, you, talk, talk to us about that. <laughs> I think to your point, it's just so cool getting to work with all of these founders. I mean, we work with Fetty, with Sonota, with Breeze. So we have five portfolio companies and it's just, it's such a privilege just to get to work with them, to help them, to learn from them. It's so interesting founders who have these ideas and they just want to bring them to life. And so we source, I guess, our deals in different ways. We have a pretty good network, I would say, across Bitcoin and Sort of it's often through relationships you build, founders you get to know, and then you start talking about funding, or it might be that they come and pitch to us and then we, we talk to them that way. If anyone's thinking of building, you can just literally send us a submission on our website and one of us will get back to you like within 24 hours. So we try and be very, very responsive. We respond to every submission pretty much. And so we're like very, very open. And then I guess our approach as a fund is we have less, a smaller number of investments because we're very, very hands-on. So we really put a lot of time and energy in supporting the founders and whatever they need. So that could be taking board positions. It could be advising with strategy. It could be 
helping them whatever network they need, thinking about legal, regulatory, like it could be anything. And so it's a very, very high, like a high touch approach. So it takes a lot of time, but that allows us to really support the companies we invest in and help to actually make them a success. And there are different funds that sort of take a different approach. So we will invest a higher amount into each company than other funds, but we will have a smaller number of companies in our portfolio. And so for us, we have a very, very, very diligent approach then to each investment, because obviously like each investment is a big proportion of the overall portfolio. Mm-hmm. So, so other funds might invest, you know, 250K into like a whole bunch of different companies and they don't really like, maybe they, they, they can be great people. It's just a different strategy. Yeah. Um, so then we will like meet a founder, hear an idea. They sort of say they want to think about funding or maybe it's a formal round that they're going through. And then we have an initial conversation and then we'll just go through a bunch of questions internally. Um, a whole bunch, We have like a standard form diligence questionnaire that we will sort of go through ourselves and send questions off. And then we fill out this kind of long form investment memo. And that goes through what the competition looks like, how they're going to, what their strategy is, what the team is, like what the financial, what the business model, all these different kind of considerations. And that really forces us to have this very, very diligent approach to thinking through every single company in this kind of very structured way. Awesome. And the kind of innovation that you must see every day, just mind-blowing. You've already mentioned Layer 2. So the, the, as a high-level kind of macro thesis then, so Bitcoin as an immutable blockchain, not going anywhere, the pet rock that we describe it as, like brilliant news, you can build on top of this thing. Okay, what can you actually build? Well, until the Lightning Network became as functional as it is now, you couldn't build as much. Can you talk us through some of the use cases that, for example, one of your portfolio companies is using to to build out what you expect to be a very valuable business? Yeah, so I, I, I can talk about Fetty, which some of sure. your listeners might be familiar Yeah, they'll know. Yep, yep. So Fetty is basically creating community banking structures for communities all around the world. So anyone who wants to hold and use Bitcoin at the moment sort of has a bit of a dilemma. It's very insecure and unsafe to hold your Bitcoin in an exchange. And it's quite challenging from a technical perspective for a lot of people to self-custody. I think a lot of Bitcoiners want to say everyone should self-custody. And the reality is that that can be very technologically challenging. And, you know, having hardware wallets, for instance, in somewhere like an emerging market where the amount of Bitcoin they might own is less, the cost of those hardware wallets might just be prohibitive. Mm-hmm. And so... Fetty really bridges this gap between third-party custody and first-party custody. It's basically creating second-party custody, this sort of community custody, which is really designed, we think it will have extreme instant use and value in, in emerging markets mm-hmm. uh, in Latin America and Africa. And also there are a huge range of applications in you know developed markets as well. Um, and they're partnering with an incredible group of human rights actors from from all around the world to sort of bring that to their communities to really create this financial freedom. Wow. Actually, literally just last night, I recorded a podcast with Okin. Shout out to Okin. He's in Namibia. And he was describing a problem that people have where they might have used Coinbase, for example, to buy Bitcoin, but there's a minimum exchange withdrawal limit. I think I've said that correctly. So there's like, I think you said 17 Namibian dollars. So if you're trying to get less than that off of Coinbase, you literally can't. And so again, it's a problem point for people that are moving around like micropayment style amounts of money. How cool. And it's also that idea of like, 
it's just helping people become their own bank. I'm lucky to be able to afford to buy my hardware wallet. So I've got my unchained multi-sig vault set up, happy days. But that, you know, a couple hundred bucks to get that all set up. And there's plenty of people that just that's like a month's wages. And again, the haves and the have-nots, it's just an extraordinary kind of wealth inequality that the world has today that, you know, Bitcoin's going to help to reverse a lot of that, hopefully. Okay, and so that's a that's a great example. And Andy, to take a bit more of a, a personal turn. So yeah, look, really love what you're doing at Ego Death. I think there's a huge opportunity to build companies on top of Bitcoin. It's very, very exciting. But Bitcoin itself, it really kind of, it really catches you. It sucks intellectual kind of capacity somehow. How has it changed your life? And how do you feel having kind of fallen down the rabbit hole and now getting to do what you do every day? It definitely takes a lot of my time, but it's amazing because if if I can say one thing, you know, the biggest thing it does is give me hope. And I think that's huge because I think it's so easy to look at the world and the environment is changing. There are more extreme weather events that is impacting people all around the world. You know, I love there's so many things I can go into the environment. That's a huge thing, but it's like, there's so many things that the world is really struggling with right now. And it always has. If you look throughout history, there's always this kind of apocalypse is coming, but you know, it does feel like there's a lot of stuff, especially like that's really changing right now. And the world's becoming pretty unstable. And for me, someone, I grew up in a period of extraordinary stability in the context of human history. And that was, that was nothing And that's kind of shifting and it's a little scary. And I think Bitcoin is this kind of thing to hold on to. It's like the life raft. It's just so exciting. It's this ray of hope. It's an amazing community. I meet amazing people through Bitcoin. I love the exchange of ideas that comes from it. Anything from the environment to technology to politics to governance. Like it just touches on so many aspects. So I would say hope is one thing. And then... I think the other thing is just open-mindedness and questioning. I think Bitcoin has really forced me. I always saw something was wrong with this system when I was working at Goldman. Like that was always very clear. But this has really forced me to really, really think deeply about that down to like, okay, why, why, why? You keep questioning and you keep asking why. And I think that requires and also promotes kind of this open-mindedness, which I think is is just really helpful to the point where now I just honestly so many aspects in my like in politics for instance I don't have strong views on because I'm in this questioning mode and it's like well I can see so many different arguments and that's I think really really valuable for me personally and something I sort of try and gently encourage in people and I haven't met anyone through this podcast just used as an example that hasn't felt like their life has changed because of getting closer and closer to bitcoin it does shift how you think there's no doubt about it it's an extraordinary process and so to to come back slightly to the investing you're then doing as 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 founders of these companies do you see you know bitcoin today is let's say one percent adoption of of bitcoin maxis does that mean 99 percent of the world is going to shift into this this mindset that has been something you've now experienced and specifically the founders that you're talking to do you also see them like how they've changed and what that might impact i don't necessarily know that i've seen it in the founders because i probably meet them after they've already gone through through that process process. um and i didn't know them before um i so i spent a lot of time in my times in goldman time off 
in the kind of, I guess, what one might call the spiritual world. And, you know, there is a lot of talk in that world, if I can call it that, around this concept of sort of a global awakening that's happening. And all of these historic prophecies around, you know, if we think about the Mayan prophecies for the end of the world, actually, it was about a transition to a new world Mm -hmm. and that we're going through right now. And, you know, I'm very skeptical because I think everyone likes to think they exist in this transformational moment in history. And whether we do or not, I think we genuinely do. And I see Bitcoin as being part of that. And I think what's really interesting is this sort of, I know, and this might come back to our fund, but a lot of the use of kind of psychedelics and and different ways that people are learn, like opening their mind um, and that maybe started in the 1960s, 70s with a lot of the spiritual knowledge coming across from India to the US for the first time. But I, I do think that it's a movement. I do think that there are more and more people who are kind of coming into Bitcoin, coming into the spiritual world, those who are meeting and there is this open-mindedness, this this sort of hope that 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 represents. So I do think that it's possible, um, and I certainly hope that that is the future that everyone kind of comes into this. Andy, I have to say you've you've piqued my interest there. So my mum and you would be friends for sure. For sure, <laughs> I mentioned that. But so so going from the Goldman Sachs trading floor, and you know, mentioned being burnt out, and you you talk about the spiritual world. What was that journey like? Like, what took you there? What did you learn? Who were the people that you met? And I find it so fascinating, this kind of, this connection between our very rational minds of like how to make money, how to build businesses, how to create solutions to problems, and then something else, this whole other world of like gut feeling and intuition. And they kind of collide in this strange way. And we're constantly kind of playing the two off against each other. Yeah, so what's that journey been like? Yeah, I was very, very lucky to sort of have enough savings from my time at Goldman that I could take time out and not have to worry about earning money for a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I got to basically just like follow invitations and ideas and just literally explore the world. And that's sort of how I ended up, I guess, in the spiritual world, which is very, very broad. But some mm-hmm. things were studying Buddhism in India, for instance, in northern India in the Himalayas, which was wow. very transformational for me. And they talk about, it's interesting you talk about intuition because the Buddhists talk about the wisdom mind and that you have all of the knowledge. You have basically this kind of wisdom inside you, but all of this stuff is basically cluttering it up and hiding it like clouds in a sky. And those things are, you know, anxiety, worry, pain, fear, all of these kind of, they would call them kind of constructs of the mind. So a lot about Buddhism is kind of releasing those and actually accessing the wisdom mind. And so I think that actually fits in very well. And if you talk to a lot of people who are very successful in in a whole range of different areas, they do talk about this concept of intuition Mm -hmm. uh, and gut instinct and how powerful that is. And it can be very biased and wrong. And so you also need to sort of clear all of the stuff away so that you can access that kind of intuition that unlocks it. And you can think about that from a spiritual perspective, or you can just think about it from a practical perspective, which is the amount of information that we take in in any moment throughout our entire lives. There's so much information that we've been able to absorb and Mm -hmm. only a tiny fraction of it we actually consciously process in that moment and that we consciously remember and that we can consciously use. And so if you're actually able to kind of clear the cognitive, the sort of conscious mind and access 
intuition, you're actually able to access an extraordinary range of information and thinking and creativity in a way that you can't when you, you know, like often you, you're trying to work on a problem, you can't figure it out and you go for a walk and suddenly it appears. Yeah. So I think there's, I guess, huge overlaps in the spiritual world and Bitcoin kind of fascinating. And, and I always love to sort of think about spiritual concepts and then always like, okay, what's the scientific kind of understanding both sides. And they don't agree and they conflict in some ways. Well, shout out to Sam Cathro who came on my show. I don't know if you've come across Sam in the space, but I encourage you to have a listen back to that episode. But he was the first person that really got me thinking about this. And it just, mm-hmm. it's, it's part of this journey. I didn't expect to be here. And you're suddenly learning about these things that come across you. That's really interesting. Okay, let's follow that for a bit and see where it takes us. Well, Andy, listen, thank you so much for spending some time with me this evening. It's been really awesome to hear about your journey to Bitcoin and what you guys are doing at Ego Death. I wish you all the very, very best. Our final question is where can people reach you if they want to get in touch? So you can send me an email. Actually, my email is just Andy, A-N-D-I, at egodeath.capital. Or you can just go to our website, which is just egodeath.capital. If you search us, you'll find it. You can just put a submission on our website. You can find me on, best thing is on Noster. I'm sure your listeners have heard about Noster. It's mm-hmm. incredible. I'm so excited about it. So I'm Andy at primal.net. Or I think my end pub is in my Twitter handle, which is at one Andy Pitt. Awesome. Yeah, I must get into Noster. I have to say it's been... Oh, I'm happy to help you. Yeah, it's it's on my to-do list. I mean, certainly it's... I mean, I wasn't a podcast host until this year, right? But like platform risk, massive, sensor, massive... It's just such an important thing that I think is happening. I just, yes, that's a good kick. Well, I had Jeff on the show a couple of weeks ago and he was awesome. Jake, the quicker you can transfer to this, the better, mate. So, all right, there you go. That'll get me thinking overnight. Andy, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Bye. Okay, friends, nice work. You made it all the way to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this conversation. If you have any questions, then please don't hesitate to reach out. And if you enjoyed the episode, then please rate like, subscribe, and share. That's it for now. Enjoy the rest of your day. All the best, Jake.